Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What did the grape say when the elephant stepped on him? He just let out a little whine. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from food writer, food icon, Ruth Reichel. Yep. That'll help break the ice. We'll talk with her later about her new novel, Delicious. Plus, we chat with actor Kevin Spacey about Shakespeare, House of Cards, and Bill Clinton. I love that House of Cards. Oh, no, it's good. I'll tell you why crazy. And if that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show that first aired in May. So cast your mind back to spring when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. L.A. Clippers owner Donald Sterling is out. Disney has announced the cast of Star Wars Episode 7. An extraordinary wave of violent weather unfurling across the eastern third of the country. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Stacey Vanek-Smith. She is senior reporter at the excellent public radio business show Marketplace. Stacey, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, there was a big feud in Hawaii over what the official state instrument should be. Um, Was it like a hoedown? Or like, <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds wonderful, actually. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a fun time. Well, yeah, it was kind of a, a Game of Thrones situation between the ukulele backers and the steel guitar backers. Really? Interesting. Yeah. There was a bill in the state legislature to make the ukulele Hawaii state instrument. Because, you know, the ukulele, you think. Right, the grass skirts and Don Ho. Yeah, the flower necklaces and the <laughs> sure. ukuleles. And, you know, the, it's like a mellow, happy instrument. That yeah. I, you, I associate that with Hawaii. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but apparently the steel guitar was actually invented in Hawaii. Oh. The ukulele brought over from Portugal. So where does this leave us? I mean, are they going to bring, are they debating this in the legislature or something? <laughs> are they bringing in instruments? It's like a talent well, show. Yeah, the poor kid with the ukulele and the inhaler, right? Um, <laughs> no, the ukulele was supposed to be on the fast track to be the official state instrument, and the bill died because of all the steel guitar protests. Once again, a success for big steel guitar in this country. Yeah. I thought we were a democracy. <laughs> I think it was Eisenhower, I think, said that, right? That's right, the steel guitar industrial complex. Yeah. Wow. No, I think it's true. I mean, the nice thing is, like, here in New York, there's no controversy. The, the taxi horn is the official state instrument. <laughs> <laughs> and here in L.A., it's the middle finger, so there you are. <laughs> Stacey Vanek-Smith, thanks for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a watering can, drizzling out booze. Not recommended for home gardens. Mm-mm. First, the history, though. Around this time, back in 1930, Pluto was officially named. And we don't mean the Disney character. Nope. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. For something we're now told isn't a planet, folks sure worked hard to discover Pluto. It started in the 1840s, when scientists noted the planet Uranus had a strange orbit. Something had to be pulling on it. They soon figured out what it was. Another hitherto undiscovered planet, Neptune. But Neptune didn't seem big enough to entirely account for Uranus's orbit. Another planet was probably out there too. So in 1906, millionaire Percival Lowell launched a project to find what he called Planet X. From the observatory Lowell founded in Arizona, his team searched the skies for decades. 
Finally, one night, 14 years after Lowell's death, astronomer Clyde Tombaugh was looking at two pictures of a star field taken weeks apart. Using what's called a blink comparator, he toggled them back and forth and saw one dim star move. Eureka! It was Planet X. Folks around the world wrote to Lowell Observatory suggesting names for the new planet. At one point, Constance Lowell, Percival's widow, humbly suggested Constance. But an 11-year-old British schoolgirl finally came up with the winning name, Pluto, the ancient god of the cold and distant underworld. And it didn't hurt that the first two letters were Percival Lowell's initials. The girl got a measly five pounds sterling for her contribution, but in retrospect, that was probably fair. Today, most scientists agree Neptune is the sole cause of Uranus's orbit, and Pluto is just one of many dwarf planets in the solar system. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to pair along with it, we are joined by Nick Williams. He is the head bartender at Tinderbox Annex in Flagstaff, Arizona, under the shadow of the Lowell Observatory. Is that right, Nick? That's correct. It's about, I'd say, three miles at the most from the observatory. You ever get concerned that they are staring at you and what's going on in your bar? <laughs> Occasionally we wonder, <laughs> you know, get that feeling on the back of your neck. So tell me what's in your drink. I wanted to do a martini, so I decided to go with the nice Juniper Rich Smalls American Dry Gin. Okay. And it works well because there's uh, juniper berries that grow naturally all over the Southwest. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. And I went with, uh, to pair with it, the Ransom Dry Vermouth. And you're in a dry climate there. so Absolutely. Yeah, so it all works. So after researching the uh, Roman god Pluto, I uh, came upon the story that he had tricked the goddess of vegetation, Persephone, into eating his cursed pomegranate, which therefore bound her to the underworld with him for a third of the year, every year. So I'm going to muddle together about 10 plump pomegranate seeds, as well as uh, rosemary to bring it all together and bring the earthy richness of the uh, driver mousse and the gin as well. Do your friends call you Nicopedia? (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't gotten that one yet. It's pretty, you're you're pretty knowledgeable. (laughs) So then after that, you're going to need to shake it really well, about 45 seconds. I usually tell people about until your hands start sticking to the metal. All right. And then so you're going to strain it and into the martini glass. Okay. And so it all comes together. And a lemon twist as well. I wrap the lemon twist around the rosemary as a garnish. Okay. And so it just all comes together perfectly to, to make this cocktail that I could definitely see uh, Clyde Tombaugh, the guy who actually did discover Pluto in 1930, and good old Percy Lowell having together celebrating their accomplishments, you know. So I have a question. You've been in Flagstaff for a little bit. People Have people accepted the fact that Pluto is no longer a planet? I think it's sort of an unspoken thing around here, you know. like <laughs> We still like to think of it as a planet. It may be a dwarf, but it's still a planet. <laughs> and Rico, Nick told me the ashes of Clyde Tombaugh, the discoverer of Pluto, of course, are on a space mission to Pluto as we speak. Are you really? Totally true. There's a spacecraft (laughs) called New Horizon. It launched in 2006, and it's set to arrive in Pluto sometime next year. Amazing. And who knows what it'll be classified as at that time. Space pebble. (laughs) Dwarf cemetery. Uh, People, our drink recipes are easy to discover. They're at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. 
So we've made some small talk, had a drink, but it's not quite a party till there's music playing. And for that, we turn to Elephant, not to be confused with Rico's stuffed animal friend. <laughs> no, whose name is Ellie. Oh, sorry about by that. By the way. No, this is a London pop duo. Amelia Rivas and Christian Pinchbeck met at a party, started dating and started making music. The internet fell in love with their songs, but just as they released their new album, the couple fell out of love with each other. Oh. Still, they gamely got together to spin us some party tunes. Hi, we're Elephant. I'm Amelia, and this is Christian. Hello. We have a new album coming out called Sky Swimming, and this is our party playlist. Is this both our dinner party? Are we sharing this dinner party, or is it a separate dinner party? Because we don't share anything anymore. We don't no. have, We don't share dinner parties. <laughs> that doesn't happen. And done. I reckon yeah, the first song we're going to start with is Over Your Shoulder by Chromio. All the grass is green now, everywhere you look. There's so many girls out there, I can write a book. Last year we had a party at my house and a friend of mine put a Chromio song on. And after the first play, we listened to it over and over again. I think it got to about 50 plays. We danced to it all night. Stop looking over your shoulder, it was up to me, make you feel right. Someone's going to ask you, what is this song? Because they probably haven't heard of it. You don't even need to answer, you just dance. Yeah, just dance on the bed and then it's fine. Done. The next song is from Diana Ross and it's called Tenderness. When this song comes on, this is when you open the nice bottle of wine. Everyone has a nice boogie. It's not too out of hand. Boogie. Boogie? Like boogie, boogie, boogie. town. Boogie. Boogie. Love me, try to be understanding. Tenderness is all that I'm asking. The background music is, is really funky, and, but the way she sings it, I just find it really interesting. Ironically, I didn't like it on first listen. But I know exactly what you're saying about because it's very strange. It is strange. There's nothing yeah. really on point. It's going to be one of those songs where I think you've got to listen to it a few times to really get inside it. But that's why it's so clever. And Diana Ross is a babe. Such a babe. She is a babe. Uh, the next song we're going to play, as everyone's dancing on the bed, is H-Town Knocking the Boots. So I picked this song, but now I'm instantly regretting picking it because it's so sleazy. So now I feel like I've turned the party. There's some sort of sleaze fest as everyone's been dancing on the bed to Diana Ross. I think it was number one in 1993. And I guess what happened was when I was six years old, when I was vibing out to my Lego, this must have been on the radio. You were not listening to this at six. No, but my mum was. And now it's inside <laughs> me, and the R&B's coming out. It is the leaving song. You put that on, and everyone's left by the end of the song. Yeah, it's a I've, good clearing out yeah, song. Yeah, I fully spot the song because I would grab my coat and leave. Bedtime. Yeah. Knocking the boots. Yeah. If we were going to choose a track from our album... I think it'd probably be Sky Swimming. It's very sedative. 
And I found quite a few people that have listened to it get in that same kind of state and it just kind of feels right. Yeah. It's that whole dreamy kind of in the clouds thing. song is a breakup song. Yep, me and Christian broke up and I wrote this song and didn't really realise that we were going to have it on the album. <laughs> it's a special moment in our lives. Special. <laughs> Brilliant. Amelia Rivas and Christian Pinchbeck of the band Elephant. Their debut album, Sky Swimming, is out now. And Rico, music history is filled with former lovers who kept working together. So they shouldn't worry. There's Fleetwood Mac, ABBA. Maybe even Daft Punk. <laughs> you know? Sure, they're robots. Yeah. Who knows how or even if they love. That's, it's a question, <laughs> I think. All right, folks, coming up, Kevin Spacey pulls back the curtain on Shakespeare when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know that this is an encore broadcast of a show that first aired in May. But don't fear, it's a good show. Yeah. In a few minutes, musician and author Todd Snyder has an identity crisis. And later, the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post answer your etiquette questions. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's Kevin Spacey. He won Oscars for his roles in The Usual Suspects and American Beauty. He's up for an Emmy Award for playing the scheming politician Francis Underwood on the hit series House of Cards. But when I spoke with him back in May, his documentary film Now, In the Wings on a World Stage, had just come out. It follows the months Kevin spent touring the planet, starring in a massive stage production of Shakespeare's Richard III. The show was mounted by the company he formed with director Sam Mendes, and it features both British and American actors. When we met, I started by asking him why. The experiment really was more about Sam wanting to, instead of sort of insisting that everybody has to speak in a kind of British accent, that we could bring Americans and Brits together, and no matter how they sound, you can make Shakespeare come alive. That an audience would just accept that that was the way Lady Anne sounded, but that was the way Clarence sounded. Why was that important to you? Because we wanted to have this experiment uh, of showing that we could bring our two cultures together and do Shakespeare and it wouldn't be and in fact, I remember Sam was like, wouldn't that be a great review for us, though? The Bridge Project, not <laughs> We thought that was a good idea. I'm going to have to bleep out the operative word of that, but I think people will get the picture. We'll get the picture. Um, why Richard III for this gigantic, globetrotting adventure? Well, it was really Sam's choice, ultimately, although we had a lot of different plays on the table. But ultimately, Sam's, I just I want to see you play this part. I think it's a great part for you. And... And that was when we decided that we'd only do one play instead of two because I said, I, I can't do more than this. It's the second longest role in Shakespeare's canon, so give me a break. <laughs> I, it's interesting that Sam Mendes would want you to play this particular role because I do see a lot of similarities between it and your House of Cards role. Yeah, there's a reason for that. The original role of Francis in the book House of Cards and the original British series was entirely based on Richard III. And that is why the direct address exists in House of Cards. Right, Francis directly addresses the audience. Because although you might think that Ferris Bueller invented 
directed dress. You're wrong. It was actually William Shakespeare. I may be Generation X, but I did know that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so the point is, is that, of course, there's a parallel because they're, one is based on the other. What attracts you to characters, though? I mean, these are characters who are, they're slighted, and then they basically use every Machiavellian tool at their disposal to just wreak revenge in every direction. What attracts you to that? those characters? You know, there is something, I mean, it isn't just me. It's audiences around the world are fascinated by this kind of thing. That was the interesting thing about watching the audiences around the world sort of really kind of enjoying being the, the co-conspirators to Richard III. Well, it's no different than the people who stop me on the street now and say, I love Francis, he kicks ass. And you're like, yeah, but... <laughs> He's a terrible, terrible man. Well, in some people's eyes, yes. I can't judge the characters I play. I just have to play them. Something that I've noticed that I love about you in all your roles is the moments of quiet there's this moment in almost any role that I've seen you where you'll go from whatever emotion you're experiencing in the scene and suddenly go to this icy stare that just says, I am not a man to be messed with. Has that always been something in your arsenal? Or was, that a, was there a moment where you realized that you could draw on that? I, I don't know. I mean, look, I don't, I'm not standing outside of myself and seeing myself. I'm in it. It's the reason that one never reads reviews. There are times when things are pointed out to you that you're completely... Uh, unaware of and they're and I don't want to become aware of them because I don't want to become self-conscious about them so this film is mainly about it's not really about the play so much as the making of the play it's going behind the scenes and seeing how a production like this gets mounted in tours but it's also and it's about the work of that but it's about the fun of it and there were two things I wanted to ask you about the kind of actors games that are portrayed in the film first of all angel cards oh, Angel cards are great all right the angel cards are um they're cards that are in a little box, and on each card is a word. And the word could be simplicity, um, flatulence, or the word could be uh, strength. And everyone in the dressing room has to pick a card just before the performance. And you have to infuse your performance that night with whatever is on your card. So sometimes, I have to tell you, we make up cards. We write our own cards in, and they're horrible. I mean, some, some of the things on cards are just, they're horrible. This is my question. What's the worst that you ever got and had to therefore infuse your performance with? I can't say it, because it's worse than any word that you're going to have to already bleep. <laughs> oh, my God. My brain is racing right now. What could that possibly be? It's pretty bad. One other thing, corpsing. Oh. All right, so for people who don't understand what the word corpsing means, it essentially means that you are on stage in front of an audience and you start laughing, and it's not part of the play. By the way, Judy Dench is the most notorious corpser in all of British theater. She breaks down laughing? Sometimes they have to stop the play because she has to go to her dressing room to compose herself. Um, so corpsing happened quite often uh, through the run of Richard III. And, and it was either happening because I was the instigator, where I would look at someone in a particular way on stage, and sometimes I'd wink at them, or sometimes I'd whisper to people. I'd like walk up and say, what are you doing? And why are you looking at me? And why are you holding that balloon? And they'd be like, stop it. Are you immune? Because you seem to be immune in the film. Oh, no. Are you kidding? There's shots of me lying and rolling on the ground. That was in rehearsal, I no, think. No, that was backstage after I just walked off stage because I just said gobbledygook in front of a thousand people. And I said it oddly in iambic pentameter. But it made absolutely no sense. It was gibberish. It was like, peanut butter on your mother's stock. And then I walked off stage. And <laughs> Why did you do that? What, the, somebody no. else? 
It came out of my mouth. This is the thing about when you're on stage and you have to talk very quickly and you're doing Shakespeare. Sometimes it just comes out garbage. You just don't say whatever it is that Shakespeare wrote or you said it too fast. I want to go to that performance. Oh, the, believe me, there were lots of those moments and lots of performances. Um, we have two questions that we ask everyone. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What don't we know about you? You knew this, didn't you? Oh, you bastard. Yeah, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. But it doesn't, here's the thing, though. I, I hold the trump card. It doesn't have to be about you. Oh. It could be about anything in the world. It's like a trivia. Something that would blow people's minds at a dinner party. Surfing is for peanut butter. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. How do you know? How do you know there aren't people out there who totally understood what I just said? I, I guess and I, I can't. You fuse your next interview with that. All right, well, look, here's, here's something that in researching you I didn't know. Maybe some of the audience will know. But you are known to be a very good impersonator. And I'm wondering if you could grace us with a, a, an impersonation that would play well on radio, something non-visual. I love that house of cards. Oh, no, it's good. I'll tell you why. 99% of that show is correct. And the 1% they got wrong is you could never get an education bill passed that fast. Kevin Spacey, the film Now, In the Wings on a World Stage, documents his worldwide tour portraying Shakespeare's Richard III. It hits select theaters this week, or you can watch it online at kevinspacey.com. Enrico, my takeaway here is next time Judy Dench performs in America, yeah. get front row seats, yeah. make silly faces at her <laughs> until she cracks up. <laughs> You're a terrible person. Time to eavesdrop. Nashville folk rocker Todd Snyder is loved for his music and for the stories he tells between his songs. He's now compiled them into a book, and today we overhear one of his favorites. Hello, everybody. My name is Todd Snyder, and I'm going to tell you a story that my friends like me to tell about the time that Tony Bennett stole 65 bucks from me. And he knows it, too. My wife agreed to let me buy an old car. And I looked in the paper and I found a 1964 convertible Rocket 88. The very first rock and roll song by Ike Turner was called Rocket 88. V8 motor in this smart and design, black convertible top and the gals don't mind. Sporting with me riding all around town for joy. The car was in great shape. It's not now. These days the top of the car won't go up. So. I should say it's not a, actually convertible. It doesn't convert. It's a, I don't even know what you call that. But one of my favorite things in the world to do is wash it. So anyway, it was a beautiful day, and I was down at the car wash, power hosing the car, which I sincerely find relaxing. And right then, in that lovely moment, this guy comes walking toward me, either homeless or at least prone to, you know, sleeping outside. In a mildly intimidating manner, he said, uh, hey, how about you give me a couple of bucks and I help you wash your car? So I, like, screwed up the little nerve I had, and I said, listen, man, I really find it relaxing when I do this alone. How about if I give you a couple bucks and you don't help me wash my car? And no this guy says, no, man, I think I'm going to help you wash your car. I don't even know if that's legal. You can't just show up and tell someone you're going to mow their lawn. That just can't be legal. But I didn't know what to do. 
and I was scared, so I screwed down all the nerve that I'd screwed up and said, fine, you know. So he picked up the brush and said, you squirt the soap water and I'll scrub. Yes, okay, you're the boss, man. And we pretty much did the whole car that way. And as we did, we started talking, like, you know, about places we'd been, troubles we'd had, girls we knew. Tiny and I got to tell you that by the time we finished, not only did... You know, I like him, but the car was clearly cleaner and better off for having been washed by two guys rather than just one. Make me feel fine. He said he'd keep an eye out for me. And then as he was about to walk off, I said, like, hey, man, one more thing. Honestly, when you came over here, were you going to rob me? And he laughed and said, yeah, man. And so I laughed, too, but I was panicked. And in what I guess I'd call fight or flight, I just reached out my hand and said, what's your name, man, you know? Without even blinking, this guy says, I'm Tony Bennett. And without blinking more than three or four times, I said, well, great, I'm Bing Crosby. Nice to meet you. His eyes got, like, wide, and he started yelling, are you messing with me, man? I said, what do you mean? You started it. You told me that you were Tony Bennett. And he goes, what do you mean? I am Tony Bennett. And he pulls out this ID, and it had his photo on it, and it said Tony Bennett. And I was like, oh. You got me. I'm wrong. You're right. And I'm not Ben Crosby at all. And then we hugged. And I'm pretty sure, and by pretty sure I mean a thousand percent sure, that it was during that hug that uh, Tony Bennett stole 65 bucks out of my coat pocket. I always want to add when I get done with that story because my friends, they'll be like, uh, oh, well, I thought you, I thought you were going to tell us about that. I left my heart in San Francisco, Tony Bennett. And so sorry if there was confusion about that. I was talking about the Tony Bennett that uh, hangs around the, the East Nashville car wash. Musician Todd Snyder, his new book is called I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like, Mostly True Tall Tales. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from Bob Hope, AKA American Public Media. I'm rich or poor I still feel sure I'm welcome as the flowers in me And now the main course where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So Rico, last week I went out to the California Poppy Reserve, mm-hmm. which is kind of a state park dedicated to golden poppies. This is a California state flower. That's right. Of it was amazing. The poppies were in full spring bloom. The hills were covered in this lush orange carpet. It was totally life affirming. So imagine my dismay when I heard that Green Bar Distillery in downtown LA had created a golden poppy liqueur. Oh, no. Flower killers. <laughs> Basically. So Awful. to find out who would do such a thing, I visited <laughs> Green Bar, and I met Melkon Kosrovian and Liddy Matthew, the husband and wife duo who own it, and I asked them, why do you drown the flowers? <laughs> oh, they're drowning in liquor. It's all good. <laughs> they feel good. Why flowers and alcohol? Well, we make a lot of liqueurs that are flower-based. Jasmine, hibiscus, for example. And when we thought of poppy, we actually thought it might make a beautiful, sweet liqueur until we tasted it and realized how hellishly bitter it was. And that's what led us to think about it as a, a different kind of product, an amaro, a bitter liqueur. And the definition of an amaro is uh, like an herbal liqueur? It's generally bitter and sweet with uh, extensive herbal notes with some contrast, like oranges or citrus. We actually in the U.S. don't have a tradition of um, 
bitter things, including bitter liqueurs. That's something from Europe and Asia. So it's kind of interesting to make a, an Amaro here. I mean, this is the country that puts caramel syrup in their mochettino. What gives you confidence that, uh, that we're ready for, to drink bitter liqueur? I think our palates are changing. There are lots of influences from everywhere. When we just look at our families, um, Melkin's side of the family is Armenian. My side of the family is Indian. We're used to a lot more different flavors. And also, don't people claim that Amaros have kind of a digestive quality, which to me always felt like code for booze hounds who want to keep drinking after dinner. That's definitely true. Which part is true? The, the booze hound part. And, and to some extent, you know, they will give you a little bit of digestion aid. You make lots of products. This one is a new one. What prompted you to finally put this one together? It really was our walks in the local hills, um, Santa Monica Mountains, San Gabriel Mountains, Griffith Park, and the Bachelor Mountain Lion, who we have avoided. The Bachelor Mountain Lion. <laughs> That's what we call him. He is solo, and he is mostly in the hills of uh, Griffith Park, away from people, but still, I always think I'm going to see him. Oh, my goodness. He needs a girlfriend. So along with the, mount, uh, the bachelor mountain lion, Melkin and I, while we're hiking, we would pick all these aromatics, especially at springtime, when it's just getting warm, and the, and the sunny side of the hills would have uh, California poppies. We'd pick them and think, oh, that's so beautiful. Wouldn't it be lovely to make something with it? For people who don't know, can you describe what they look like? They, they look like uh, orange butter. They're velvety, they're small, they're intensely colorful. And so why has it taken this long for anyone to make a Grand Poppy liqueur? Like, why hasn't this happened before? It took a while to learn. Uh, technically, Grand Poppy is a very uh, complicated thing to make. We infuse all the botanicals, redistill it, and then reinfuse it. It's kind of like how you make absinthe. And that's a very complicated process to get right every time, batch to batch to batch, have the same sorts of flavors. So it took a little bit of time. And then I think a lot of us are starting to understand that being local is more than just making things here. There's an aspect of it that reflects our, our place. Uh, we wanted to take some of the things that make our state unique, California poppies, our state flower, the California bay leaf is a turbocharged version of the bay leaf, and then things that grow best here because of our hot, cold climate, uh, grapefruit, orange, lemons. These are things that make California unique. What about like sunblock? <laughs> you can put that on the outside when you're, you know, when you're yeah. drinking it. But that uh, you know, brings up the question, what can't be alcohol then, right? I mean, is it just a matter of finding a way to like cut something that's bitter and surrounding it with enough good things? Just make sure they're not poisonous. <laughs> We've learned, um, I mean, we, when we're foraging, half the time Melkin will pick something, and he'll, he'll, he's just about to put it in his mouth, and I just tell him, mm, does that smell like almonds? If so, we should put it, put it away. We should throw it away. It'll become food for the bachelor lion. Yeah. Oh, the bachelor mountain lion. Well, let, let's sip it. We're looking at it. Cheers. Cheers. It's really nice. It's, it's actually not that bitter. It's even less bitter than a Campari, Feels like a Lillet, something you would drink with soda, kind of in the summer. Only 20% alcohol, so only 20% alcohol, so you can use it to clean your hands after touching something. No, so it's much um, lower in alcohol than uh, it's not a, a hard spirit. So this is I was admiring this label, which actually prominently features the poppy itself. I've designed most of our labels. Oh, you designed them. Isn't it beautiful? It's a black background with that orange poppy with just a little little yellow ring. And it reminds me of a, a movie poster from the 20s. I was going to say, it definitely has a, a kind of a movie poster, an old vintage movie poster quality. But my biggest audience for, you know, the labels, the liquid, everything we do here 
is my wife. So I try to make Aww. things that she likes. Now I feel bad that, that I thought that he'd be fodder for the uh, mountain lion. <laughs> Should I leave now? So, Rico, I did some research, and the bachelor lion has a name. Oh, nice. Yeah, the Fish and Wildlife Department monitor his movements, and they call him P-22. <laughs> no wonder he's still single. That's right. It's a problem for him. All right, people, coming up, food writer and now novelist Ruth Reichel explains delicious when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, celebrated food writer Ruth Reichel imagines a conversation with celebrated food writer James Beard. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week are our unimpeachable etiquette experts, Lizzie Post <laughs> and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post, and join us once a month to tackle your most trying dilemmas. They co-authored Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, and Lizzie... Dan, welcome. Thank you. As always, it's great to be with you. Thanks for coming. You know, we were talking before you arrived this time. Where do you guys turn when you have questions? Yeah. You know, like we come to you to really kind of settle big etiquette dilemmas. Who do you look to when you're stumped? I definitely say we look to each other, which sounds really mm -hmm. cheesy, but we do. I often start off the day by crashing on Dan's couch and wow. just venting my dilemmas. <laughs> and then, you can't trust each other, can you? You're like family yeah. members. You might have, you know, you know ulterior motives for giving advice. No, what's funny is that I'll go to him for advice and then I'll tell him the advice was wrong. <laughs> That's wrong? You lead her astray, Dan? So true. Oh, no. oh there you go. So a dialectic. <laughs> All right. But but to, to give a, a due props, Dan Savage, a great advice yes. giver. And okay. I really appreciate his approach and, awesome. and his style. All right. Well, let's ask you some of our listener questions. Yes. And if uh, they don't like your answers, they can always turn to Dan. <laughs> Here's something from Alexis in Chicago, Illinois. I love this question. Alexis writes, I was taught to walk on the right side of the sidewalk and to mm -hmm. stand on the right side of an escalator so others could pass on the left. What do I do when encountering louts who don't know these rules of social order and insist on walking or standing wherever they please, creating disorder? Amen, yeah. Alexis. <laughs> New Yorkers would be so happy with this question. I hear a lot from my New York friends about walking etiquette. It's time we had a, a, a book that dealt with sidewalk etiquette. I often think about throwing people off the escalator. Like, honestly, <laughs> it, it's unbelievable. You can't drive like this. The left lane is the passing lane. What's, what are the, how do you deal with it when you encounter it in everyday life? Excuse me, pardon me. Magic words are magic. You need mm. to get by. Excuse me, pardon me, on your left. But unfortunately, that puts the, the onus on us instead of the jerk who's standing in our way. Well, there's always going to be jerks. Like, yeah. yeah, they're unaware of it. You're not. The truth is, Alexis, is that you're not going to change someone, and you're definitely not going to change someone you don't know. <laughs> so just be patient and realize that I am so happy that you are out there in the world because yes. you will make it better for the rest of us. The, with the improper advice, which is every once in a while, particularly when that group of teenagers is walking five across <laughs> down the sidewalk towards you, instead of stepping out of the way, maybe just let them think for a minute, is that person going to walk into me? Is it really appropriate for us to walk like three, four across on the, on the sidewalk? I like that Like answer. a bowling ball towards pins. Hold your ground. <laughs> what I add to the, the, excuse me, pardon me, and I find yeah. this does work, if you give a reason. So you're like, I'm, excuse me, I'm late for work. 
Mm. I found that people are a little calmer because they're like, oh, I can relate to someone having to be somewhere because then we're all yeah. in it together. The man's oppressing you. So <laughs> I would reasons. love it if you just kept walking through the city and saying to people, like, I'm having a baby. I'm having a baby. <laughs> I've tried Brenda. that. I was arrested. Oh, no. All right. And also, let, let this be a message to the world, though. Stand on the correct side of the escalator. Stand please. on the right. All right. So this next question comes from Caroline in Austin, Texas. And Caroline writes, last night, I attended a fundraiser with a close friend at a contemporary art gallery. I had not seen this friend in two weeks, so we had a lot to talk about. The thing is, when I attend functions like this, I want to catch up with the friend, but I also want to socialize and meet new people. There we were at this party, and we only spoke to each other. How does one handle this social tango? Mm. I can so identify with this. Um, Be proactive on the front end of it and say, hey, I totally want to go to this show opening with you, but let's grab coffee or dinner or a drink beforehand so we can catch up. That way it's clear that I'm taking time with you, but I want to enjoy the environment we're headed to as well. And if you find yourself spending too much time with your close friend and you want to be circulating a little bit, just be as intentional. You know, I'm I'm really hoping to introduce myself to a couple new people tonight. Sure. Or how about, excuse me, I'm going to go mingle for a second. Let's round up in 20 minutes or something. Yes. Come rescue me if I give you this sign. (laughs) How about about we use the same tack we use when we encounter people on the escalator and say, excuse me, and push them to the side. (laughs) Keep walking. (laughs) To your friend, you do this? Yeah. I got something to do. I'm having a baby. I'm having a baby. (laughs) Several ideas for you there, Caroline. And uh, here's something from Jane in Malibu, California. Jane writes, oh man, this is tough. I recently was looking in my 19-year-old daughter's closet for a bathing cap she borrowed before going off to college last fall. I didn't find the bathing cap, but in a gym bag I did discover an unused pregnancy test, an empty medical marijuana package, and strike three, two empty cigarette boxes. This sounds like an LSAT for etiquette people. Like, is, this, is this like a kind of a logic problem before you go to etiquette school? It sounds like a partnership for a drug-free America commercial. Yeah, it yeah. does. Do I ask my daughter about this stuff, asked Jane. She didn't give me permission to look in her closet, and she is 19. What's your advice? Ooh, she's 19. That's... Yeah, I yeah. was going to ask, how old's the daughter? She's 19. This, I mean, this really does come down to actually be more of a parenting question. I mean, you're violating her privacy by going in and looking for something. And Although there's a little bit the intent is the question because she wasn't necessarily snooping, yeah, which in some was... way to me opens up the discussion a little bit. But snooping or not, you're still going through someone's private space without asking them. And that's mm-hmm. a re- especially for kids. And I don't want to call her kid. She's 19. But like. That's a really big issue. You went through my stuff without asking sure. me. But it seems like she discovered her, ta- her, you know, her daughter was at college and she it was her home and she's yeah. looking for something. This is and this isn't a legal I, argument. You know, it's like this is your daughter you're talking about. No, that's true. But I come down on the side of your daughter is getting into a place in life where she is independent. She's going to be living her own life and you're probably not going to know everything. I know plenty of people who have not told their parents some of the biggest things they've gone through in life. And we're not talking about you, Dan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or are we? Was that car accident number four? Oh, yikes. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I want your parents to listen, but I also don't want them to. By the way, Dan's holding up seven fingers going there were seven (laughs) car accidents. All right. But this is kind of serious stuff. Is there some basic takeaway we can give Jane here? Just ha- have having difficult conversations is really tricky. So having them well is an important part of the process. Ask permission to have the conversation. If you're going to have it, approach it with some tact and some care. And if you're not going to have the conversation, be sure it's something that you can live with, that you're not holding a grudge or harboring a grievance that's going to really disrupt or affect the relationship in a negative way. 
All right. Boom. Now that is some wisdom for you, ladies and gentlemen. Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post setting. They are the co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. And man, Rico, we covered some good ground today. Yep. Left lane doddlers, snooping moms. We did run the gamut. Yeah. Which just goes to show, ladies and gentlemen, there's no etiquette dilemma we won't tackle. That's right. Either with the help of experts or celebrities pretending to be experts. Send us your questions by heading to dinnerpartydownload.org and clicking contact. Ruth Reichel is one of the most respected food writers of the last few decades. She was the food critic for the Los Angeles Times, then the New York Times, and then editor-in-chief of the beloved, venerable food magazine Gourmet until it folded in 2009. She has written a series of acclaimed nonfiction bestsellers about food, but her latest is a novel. It is called Delicious! Exclamation point. It comes out this week, and Ruth, it's an honor. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming. So this is the story of a young woman. Her name is Billy. She moves from California to New York City to take a job at a respected, venerable food magazine. It's called Delicious, which shortly thereafter suddenly folds. It sounds suspiciously an awful lot like your experience at Gourmet. (laughs) Why write about that experience in novel form rather than the memoirs you're known for? I mean, I guess it sort of happened because I had this experience of when the magazine was closing Going in, the first thing I did was lock the library because we had this amazing library at Gourmet that, you know, every great cookbook since 41 came through there and it was it had been beautifully curated. And I thought someone will want this library. So I went over to just a filing cabinet and opened it. I'd never done that before. And there was every letter Gourmet had ever gotten. Man. And they, they weren't fascinating letters. They were, you know, complaints about <laughs> recipes. And, but I sort of had one of these epiphanies that you sometimes do as a writer. What if I had found a bunch of letters by a little girl during World War II to James Beard, who had, in fact, worked for the magazine at one point? Which is sort of the twist of the book that Billy finds, that cache of letters. Right. And I wanted her to be in this, I mean, food people are the most generous people I know. A really good food magazine is a warm, embracing place. And it was just a way of putting her in a very warm atmosphere. How much of that atmosphere is actually based on the real gourmet and how much of it is fantasy? The delicious magazine that you represent here, it is the kind of place where an editorial assistant is not only not admonished for wandering for hours during her workday around Greenwich Village tasting food, she is encouraged to do so. Was that actually the case? Um, yes. I, you know, Even when I was at the LA Times as the food editor, what I said to people was, I don't want to see you sitting at your desk. Get out. I never had a sense that you, people do their best work sitting at their desks. <laughs> I think they do their best work by you know, going out and living and bringing you stories back. That was how Gourmet Ran. All right. So basically, if you have a chance to have you as a boss, take it. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The twist in the book, as you said, comes when she, she stumbles upon this batch of letters from World War II. And they're letters from this young reader of the magazine to the great food writer, James Beard. 
Beard lived well into the 1980s. Why did you decide to have this correspondence date specifically back to the 1940s? Well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one was that I had the great good fortune of finding in a thrift store a whole trove of documents from World War II, mostly from the Department of Agriculture, how to grow a victory garden, how yeah. to cook with rations. Food was considered one of the fronts of the war. Because it was in shorter supply, obviously. It was in shorter supply. I mean, the, the Crop Conservation Corps was really about people going out and picking fruits and vegetables on the farms because the farmers were all at war. They knew that they had to feed the soldiers. People were saving their fat and I don't think there's been another time in the history of this country where we literally were eating at the same table. Going back to the letter writing aspect of the book, these letters are being written to James Beard. My understanding is you knew him. I can't say I knew him well. I met him many times, yes. you Obviously, you think of him as perhaps the ultimate pen pal for a food-obsessed person. What made him so great? He, For one thing, he spans most of the 20th century. He was one of the few Americans of his time who really understood that American food could be great. I mean, in a time when, you know, Americans were kind of ashamed of their cuisine, he really understood that part of our strength was that we're a nation of immigrants and that we've absorbed all of these different food ways into our culture. I mean, in many ways, he is the father of modern American cuisine. What would you most like to talk to him about today, if you could? Correspond with oh, him. I would just love to walk around with him and show him <laughs> New York today. Um, He'd be like, what? Are you kidding? He, yeah. I mean, he would be, I think, so thrilled at where we are now with food. I never thought that I would see a time when food became part of popular culture, when people would think of eating, going to restaurants as interesting as going to movies, going to theater, that it would become something educated people were really interested in. You were talking about the 1940s, this time when, as you say, uh, you know, Americans all ate from the same table. They ought to chip in to grow and cook food for everyone. Obviously, you are very proud of where American culture has come. But in a way, do you want to go back to the 40s? Maybe we've come too far in one direction and lost something? Well, I mean, I think the thing that we've lost is eating has become a real class issue in America, and that's shameful. Everybody has a right to eat well, and it should, we should not be in a place where rich people can eat food that's never been touched by pesticides and poor people are left with you know, eating stuff that's cheaper than food. If I could dial it back, that's what I would dial it back to. Do you have any idea of maybe a direction to go to make that happen? One of the ways is we start thinking about justice for food workers. Hmm. You know, the people who are being relegated to eating the stuff that's cheaper than food, shamefully, are often the people who are picking and packing and serving the food. There's a famous quote about music critics, which is writing about music is like dancing about architecture. It's such a great quote. <laughs> of course. And a cynical person might say the same thing about a food critic or someone who's writing a novel about food. Why, why do we need it? Well, I, let, me, let me answer that with one of the letters I got when I was at the New York Times. I got a letter from a man who said, I wish you would write more often about steakhouses. I had a, tr a quadruple bypass, and I am no longer allowed 
to eat red meat, and the only time I ever get to taste it is when you write about it. Wow. So basically, people are living vicariously through you to an extent. Well, I mean, I as a restaurant critic, I mean, one of the things that I always thought was most of the people who read this review are never actually going to go to these restaurants. And one of my jobs is to put them in the seat with across from me and have them taste what I'm tasting. And as a writer, it's a wonderful challenge trying to describe an intangible. I mean, that's what all good writing does, really. You make people feel and taste and smell things. Ruth Reichel, her new novel is called Delicious. And Brendan, since leaving Gourmet, Ruth has said she does a lot more home cooking. Mm-hmm. And here's a tip she gave me when making chicken stock. Use what are called stewing hens. Okay. These are hens that no longer lay eggs. They're too old to use for meat, but they're great for stock. See, who says you lose your usefulness when you retire? Oh, my word. (laughs) The chicken AARP, I'm sure, endorses stewing. But not us anymore. And, folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Till next week, you can find us online. We are always on Twitter or on Instagram. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Our gratitude to our staff cannot be contained in a tweet, though. Nope. Great work this week from associate producer Jackson Musker, digital production assistant Brittany Martin, our intern Esther Mania, engineers Charlton Thorpe and Jeff Peters, and executive producer Peter Clowney. And now before we leave you, here's One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or departing from this week's dinner parties. Earlier this year, Minnesota's Haley Bonner released her fifth album, Last War, She's touring behind it now. Here's a track from it with the title that's the opposite of what we wish for you. Yes. It's called Kill the Fun. Bon appetit. San Francisco lights have gone. Blinking down the road that we've been traveling on. Holding on to what we've got. Sleep against the window like there's something you forgot. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and Rico, we got to have a serious talk. Okay, what? I was looking through your closet, and I found a gym bag with an old Us Weekly, a pair of dad jeans, I, and a jar of trans fats. I can explain. Wait, why were you looking through my closets? That's where I keep my counterfeit money. <laughs>